0: Hi everyone, Uh, just a quick note off the top of the episode here Um, (laughs) uh, Not sure exactly what happened with our microphones uh, Or my microphone specifically during recording But unfortunately, uh, it decided to record from my laptop instead So I apologize for the uh, laptop microphone quality of uh, my voice Uh, Luckily, Kevin still sounds great (laughs) (laughs) um but appreciate your patience we'll be uh back to the normal episode i just didn't want to toss this one because we had some really great discussion uh but thank you all so much and enjoy the show Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Legend of Portalcast. I am Colin, your main host. Uh, We are a podcast dedicated to Avatar The Last Airbender, Legend of Korra, and all things Avatar. And today we're going to be focusing on that second of those two as we are going to be discussing episode nine from book one of Legend of Korra, Out of the Past. Uh, And joining me today is Kevin. Hello, Kevin. Kevin.
1: Hey, Colin, thanks for having me on.
0: <laughs> it's good to good to have you back on and uh, good to get to catch up with you again, man.
1: Absolutely. It's good to be back. I was so excited when you did your last news episode. I'm like, oh, yes, it's back.
0: <laughs> Do you have a pretty good uh, rest of your summer into the fall and everything?
1: I can't believe it's actually that time of year, but yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know, winter is coming. Uh... Oh, I know. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, all right, so folks, we're going to be talking about, uh, of course, this uh, this ninth episode of the first book of Legend of Korra, um, and to kind of bring bring us all up to speed here, um, we're going to do a quick recap of the previous episode. Um, so last time, um, when extremes meet, uh, Korra decided to confront Tarlok um, after he imprisoned uh, her friends, um, because they went down, uh, there was a huge kind of tense conversation. Uh, clash after uh, some non-benders were being corralled because they said they were equalists even though their power was being turned off it was a pretty ugly situation Um, and uh, unfortunately uh, Korra's friends got arrested she went to confront Tarlock, and they got into this like super awesome fight in his office but then it seemed like Korra was about to win and then Tarlock decided to bloodbend revealing his identity and he spirits her away in a sodomobile headed towards the mountains.
1: No one likes it when someone turns on God mode. Everyone knows. <laughs> oh man.
0: It's just like, he was just like, all right, I'm going to come in and stomp some pubs. <laughs> it's just <laughs> like, it's actually like a level 50, like level, whatever person. Coming in. <laughs> um so the first scene we've got is tarlock's cabin um and it just the episode itself opens up with tarlock bloodbending cora into the cage and every time i hear that sound effect for bloodbending it is just so unsettling it is oh god i want to find out what they do for that sound effect like what is the secret sauce to make that just sound like so so rough
1: I don't know, something between like crunching a bug and like snapping your, your, uh, your fingers, like, oh, I don't know what it is, but it's, it's nasty.
0: (laughs) Um, so, uh, you know, again, this is just kind of setting the stage as Tarlock throws her into this cage. It is a metal cage that obviously she is not a metal bender yet. Can't get out of, um, she is in the middle of the mountains and this isolated cabin And clearly, we know Tarlok is piecing out because he's got to kind of keep the story going. Um, It's just a very, very kind of spooky and concerning uh, start to it all. Because, I mean, it's, but it's interesting because I feel like there's always been very huge moments of change when uh, Avatar or Korra characters are in positions of restraint or isolation. Um, I feel like it's always kind of like a cool narrative vehicle that the writers use.
1: I like your view of that.
0: (laughs) Um, So that brings us to air temple Island. Uh, We have this wonderful moment with Milo answering the phone. (laughs) 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 It's like, who is this?
1: (laughs) There was, there was such the right amount of Milo in these two episodes.
0: (laughs) I know. Right. Um, And he just has like no time for their shenanigans. Tell me what I need to know. Um, And we hear (laughs) over the phone that Cora has been kidnapped by equalists. So immediately there's that dramatic irony that like, we know that that's not the case, but it's like setting this stage of like, Ooh, like how, how's Tarlock going to spin this? Yeah. <laughs> um, so of course that brings us to the Republic city government chamber. Tarlock is looking wounded and he is telling them his side of the story. What he says happened. Cora came to ask him to set her friends free but then the Equalist attack knocked him out and took her away. Um, and, and what I found really interesting about this and what I kind of want to dive into is that, like, this is Tarlock using the fear of the Equalists and what they have been doing as, like, to make them an easy scapegoat and to make this lie incredibly believable.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I have to say, I like, uh... He was trying to spin it fairly well. I'm giving him, um... Showing the attack, showing he's the victim. I mean, it's like human nature. As soon as you see a victim, to go, oh no, something's wrong. Like, how do we help you?
0: But then again, Tarlok is also like super a crafty, like son super, of a bitch. yeah, he's a wily. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and then you know, clearly we're getting like a little bit of skepticism, I think, from from Tenzin. But also, it's just like I think it's outweighed by concern. Um, because if, like, the fact of the matter is, whatever the truth is, Korra is gone. And I think that there's, like, this, uh, you know, Tenzin feels like he has responsibility for her safety. And it's just, like, this, you know, huge moment of concern from him. But the scene shifts, and we get one of my favorite scenes from this episode. It's so short, but it's so excellent. Lin-Bei still recovering from her injuries at the fight at the pro bending arena is getting out of bed, looking a little bit rough and seemingly very, very sore. Um, but then she hears over the radio that the avatar has been captured by equalists. And then we get this amazing scene of her opening up that like wardrobe her armor is resting there. And then she turns and just, it flies onto her and like straight up like Tony Stark, Iron Man, like <laughs> goes on her literally. Oh my gosh. And then, but like the, the cherry on top of this is as she is kind of thinking about it, she is, or it wasn't after the pro arena. This was her recovering from like that showdown inside of Sato's lab. Um, Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Yeah. And this is her taking her police force badge and just ripping it off. And it's like this amazing classic trope moment of, like, the law-abiding character realizing that they're going to have to work outside the law.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I have to say... Having watched this through now, this was just these two episodes were just littered with tropes. Not in the not in the bad way, but like this was very much a I almost got like a not film noir is not the right word, but um, definitely a detective type of scenario. I mean, this and a few other things that happened later on, like the quote unquote assassination um, with the bending t- being taken away, like it just gave me that feel of like a uh, like a cop movie
0: absolutely i think that because like there is this like the era that republic city is trying to emulate is like this um you know uh 20s uh turn of the century era um mix of like u.s and china is that i think that there is kind of like a little bit of that like you know like wild west type of atmosphere where it's just like you're starting to have like you know, more of these kind of like gangsters like showing up and like as cities are becoming these like huge hubs for people to live in and suddenly it's just like you know, it's it's uh I don't know. It's like you had cities before, but now it's just like as technology is advancing, you know, they they have more places they can escape to and more ways they can hide their criminal activity.
1: Oh, I wonder <laughs> if that's gonna relate to something in this. Hmm <laughs>
0: Um, but what I love about this scene, too, is that um, immediately as she rips off the badge, it cuts to the statue of Toth outside of the police force building. And I don't know. It's just like such an impactful transition because there's so much there's so much baked into Lynn's identity. And as we kind of get further and further into the series, we see that there is like this huge like history and complication and like mixed feelings about her relationship with her mother. And I think it's just like, that was the cool part for me of looking back at this moment, this transition in this scene had such a, an intense weight because I felt like it is this huge uh, kind of shift for Lynn's character arc and her growth over the course of the series.
1: Definitely. Yeah. So this one is uh, the question was, what would Toph do? And the answer is kick ass for your friends and family, not just not just the law. (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) You know, we get this we get this moment of uh, Lynn going into the prison to break out Asami Bolin and Mako. Um, And of course, Asami's pretty surprised to see her. Um, and then you have this, like, wonderfully comedic scene of, like, Poland is trying to go to the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like, I can't go while well, there's, like, no noise. <laughs> it's just <laughs> like... <laughs> it's like, anytime going to the bathroom is involved, I feel like it is used for such a great, like, comedic punchline in both Korra and Avatar. <laughs>
1: Oh, that's very true.
0: Are there bathrooms in the spirit world?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I was just thinking. As a
0: matter of fact, there are not. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Lynn busts him out, and we have this again the little uh, uh, cap to this is Lynn zipping up Bullins <laughs> flying with <laughs> their metal bending.
1: <laughs> I, I will say this forever the the way that these writers can mix in the comedy with the serious stuff, I I love it.
0: Yeah. Um, so, you know, then uh, we shift back and we get to uh, Cora's cage in Tarlock's cabin. Again, it's this moment of isolation. Cora is stuck. She's yelling for help. Obviously, there's no one there. And she resigns to meditation. Um, I, like, what I love, too, about this is that the way that the animators um, and the illustrators kind of lit this scene. Um, the way that the light is coming in from the top and the way that it's kind of spilling over. It just, it was such a great dramatic representation of And when she sits down in that meditative position, it's like the front of her face is shadowed, but the rest of her body is kind of like glowing from this light as it's like kind of spilling over her. And it was such a cool, like just, I don't know from like a cinematography standpoint, it just, I like wrote that while I was taking notes. I was like, I like this a lot. This is is cool. (laughs)
1: I feel like they definitely played a lot more with um, what they could do with the animation in in Korra.
0: Absolutely, I mean, and th- this is like it's these kinds of details that I really respect and love about Korra's because they like, you know, they just they they saw that they could do so much more and they did. And I think that that's like that's truly what you can say that you know whatever you feel about the story of Korra and everything else, like it doesn't matter because. It is just like this improvement in the way that they just like upped their game is is so incredible, and they just did not cut corners with that with that type of stuff. So as Cora begins to meditate, she connects with Aang for the first time in a really profound way, and holy crap, this is when we get this is our first and. It's our only glimpse of the gang when they're older. Well, we get, like, uh, like a Lin flashback with, like, an older Toph, like, at some point, but...
1: This is the only one where we get to kind of see, like, where they end up and them interacting kind of with the audience.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And, I mean, we get this, like, suddenly, you know, we are... We see an adult Aang and an adult Toph. And they are confronting this criminal named Yacone in a restaurant. And it's like kind of this vague language as they come in. They say, we know what you've been doing. You're Which coming I should us. add,
1: a guy in a restaurant, Yakone. it's the Sopranos. This is great. <laughs>
0: I know, right? <laughs> I mean, Yacone, Al Capone. I feel like there's also Al like oh, some it, similarities it's so on good. that front. <laughs> oh, man. What are you doing? What, what are you Which- doing in this? one? <laughs> Yo, you, you, you can You just come into this restaurant. You come into Vesuvio. <laughs>
1: it, that's why this whole episode. I just keep thinking like like a nineteen twenties thirties like <gasps> <laughs> Italian crime thing.
0: Ah, uh, but then you know we get this like gravelly voiced Yacone who responds, "I've beat every lackey judge you've thrown at me, and I'll beat this one too." And it's just like that line alone. It just says everything about where. Republic City is at in this time. Here we are in a world where it is a city that has been developed by Aang and Zuko. Toff is the police chief and they are dealing with the reality of a criminal circumventing the criminal justice system. Clearly using corruption and influence and money to be able to beat out cases, so that he can just kind of keep doing what he is doing, and I think it is so interesting that like we don't we don't get too, we we hardly get any other details, but this line alone already sets the tone of where things are at in Republic City at this time, and I love it.
1: <laughs> Hashtag uh, first Avatar World problems. <laughs> Oh, uh, no, we have to deal with the justice system now. It's no longer just people <laughs> passing each other on the road. Yes, there's no longer this, like... Oh, just... perfect, the Avatar just showed up. Solve all our problems, do you mind?
0: <laughs> when well, we think about the criminal justice system of, like, Avatar Day, when they're like, we will make you exactly. face the criminal wheel of justice. <laughs> it's like, what's that one? Oh, it's you're boiled in oil. <laughs> Oh, my well,
1: how gosh. far have stars come?
0: Uh, um, so the scene shifts and it brings us to Air Temple Island. Um, Lin brings uh, Mako, Bolin, and Asami back to the Air Temple, and uh, Tenzin says that he wants to join them to rescue Korra and the Metal Benders. Um, because now they're just like saying, like, Oh my gosh, like we gotta go get Korra. And this is also the beginning of. <sighs> It's my only kind of it was the thing that kind of bugged me about these two episodes, and we'll kind of see this as it goes on. It's just how heavy-handed Mako's like machismo like way that he is trying to like look out for Korra. It is it feels just so extra, and I get it, and I think that it is very much a product of them thinking that they were only gonna have one season and that they were trying to rush this relationship with uh Mako and Korra. And just the way that he's kind of like lashing out and Asami's kind of giving that side eye and everything. I don't know. It just like,
1: I wow. I agree with you. I was I was thinking the same thing and it's a two way street. I agree with the Machismo of Mako and also the Asami forcing the Oh my god, he kissed another girl like, it was that mix of the two of them where I'm just like, we got it. Okay. Yeah. He kissed Cora. He likes Cora. He doesn't know what he wants to do. This isn't, you know, um, oh, what the hell is it? Saved by the bell. <laughs> like, we got it. Like, Zach Morris, you're a jerk and you don't know what you want to do. Like, <laughs> but you're right. It's like, I, I, I do give them a lot of credit for the fact that they thought they were, this is it. And through the whole season, they are kind of doing this whole, is she isn't he kind of thing. Um, and in the end they end up making sense of it, but they had force they had three more seasons to figure it out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the team decides to, uh, make their way to the equalist underground headquarters. Um, Tenzin and Lynn helping, uh, the crew as they make a plan to rescue Korra and the metal benders. And it is, again, it is just, this is, this is Lynn badass mode. Because as they're like, where do we go? It's like, well, maybe we can, I remember this part. And then she's just like, tremor sense. Boom. There's a tunnel that way.
1: <laughs> and oh, this like, is an episode of just her taking no prisoners. Yes. It was fun.
0: Oh, it just, I can't it, wait
1: till we get to the uh, the chase scene. Because that was just insane.
0: Yes. Um So, uh, what's great and, you know, what's, what's really interesting too, is like, she's detecting like the clever, like kind of mechanized entrances used to discreetly go in and out of the city. And it's just like, um, the operation of it. And we'll kind of get into this more, but just like how extensive this is. Um, oh
1: yeah, exactly. Like the platinum wall, like it's all things that have been like years in the making. You know that this had to have been literally building under the surface.
0: Absolutely. Um, Mm.
1: But I like how quick Lynn adopts in like her to uh, go to this. I mean, it comes up again a couple other times in this episode. Lynn's ability to both do earth and metal building uh, bending seamlessly mm. is so cool to watch. Yes. When we get to her like unlocking the door from behind, I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> that's how you use metal bending. It's yes, sense.
0: yes. And that that's like what's so cool is that we get to see her. I mean, and then we get to see like the little tiny flourishes of her like zipping up Bull and Zipper. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly, just the little things where you know the control is incredible. <laughs>
0: um, so, as they're in the tunnel, uh, Asami kind of confides in Bolin about Mako. Um, she's just like, you know, it seems like Mako's been acting weird. And Bolin tells her about Mako and Korra having this kiss. Of course, he doesn't really share any details, and all he says is like, yeah, "I probably didn't mean anything." <laughs>
1: But come on, Brown. He's like, I'm bro. over it now. Bro code. <laughs> it's like, yeah, dude. He's over it's it.
0: like, Bolin. Like, come on, man. You gotta, you gotta also like look at it from Asami's perspective and see how she could probably be like very upset about this. And it's just, but Bolin is like, he's so naive and innocent. Exactly. And innocent. Yeah, his
1: innocence is just.
0: <laughs> and I think like Asami also sees that, and it's just more. of She's just like oh, pull in. <laughs> um Not mad at you. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, it's interesting because, uh, you know, as we were, uh, I was watching this with Abigail and, you know, it's this moment as, like, he says this and then suddenly, like, Asami kind of just has this moment where she's looking frustrated. And I was like, see, there are several moments over the course of these two episodes that Asami has these looks that made me think, is she going to turn on them? Because Mm -hmm. she has, like, if, like, if Mako is throwing her to the wayside. And like, she doesn't have like the team support. Like what is there in it for her? I mean, like obviously there's a lot, but it was just like at the time as no, the episodes are coming that's out. That's a
1: very good point. I mean, at this point her, it, I don't want to say it's a marriage of convenience, but I mean, other than her connection to Mako, the only reason she's also with them is because, well, her dad betrayed her. Yeah. So it's not so much that she's with them as she's against the others. Yes. And this is her connection to the gang.
0: Absolutely. Um, so the crew goes farther in. Um and again, you know, this is what I, I do want to talk about, like the sophistication of like this operation with like the wall, uh Lynn being able to unlock it in that badass moment, but like the tunnel tram, this whole operation, as you were saying, this has been years in the making, but what is most astounding is that this is like assumedly done without the help of benders.
1: Yeah. Uh, exactly I was just going to say the same thing like that, this is all mechanized things they had to build specialty to do everything and for them to have this whole connected system I mean this is not something you do overnight and that's why I always thought this was such a fascinating season of Korra or really all of Avatar is that it's about the emotions being felt by non-benders that they felt so strongly about this that they put years into the making of trying to take over you know, trying to take over Republic City. Like, you know that the sentiments aren't just so casual that they're like, oh well, we're upset at Benders. It was no. Bender's gotta go and we will do all of this for that for that end. And it's also incredible that Amon Amon was able to do all this for so long for so secret.
0: Well it's I mean it's the other thing too. It's like it's what happens I think when you have like you have the gap of the avatar. And I think that it's always this like very interesting period. And I think like we got to see a glimpse of that in the new um, Rise of Kyoshi book is very much about like how like the time after Avatar Kurek and there's like what happens during that time when there is no Avatar or there is no recognized Avatar and they are not like you know being able to make the same impact that a fully realized Avatar is because they are such a huge part of of not only like culture and influence, but like bad guys aren't going to try to like swagger and step too much if they know what the avatar is capable of. And I think it's a matter, it's a matter of like, as soon as the avatar has gone, it's just like, all right, let's get to work. We only got like 16 years (laughs) or like however many years to kind of like get this going. But I mean, it makes sense. They had to do this over a long period of time, but that's just like, they knew that they were also there. This was like a ticking. It was like only a matter of time till the avatar kind of surfaced and started to, to metal. So uh, the team gets in, they're able to bust in get to the prison uh two guards um uh, try to confront Tenzin in like these like closed like like prison quarters and it's just like the first thing i said like thought of when i was like writing the notes it's like don't ever fight an airbender in closed quarters it's one of the first <laughs> things that we saw in avatar Which, the last yeah, airbender the first thing that we
1: saw in avatar <laughs>
0: It's just like they have no chance
1: because it's like the advantages of every other element are gone. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Um,
0: So, and then we get the scene where Lynn gets to the cage and it's holding her metal benders. And it's just like, uh, it's such a tragic moment because you see as lynn approaches it's this sad realization that like these are metal bars she bends them easily out of the way and you just know and all of the dejected looks of the metal benders there that their bending was taken away and oh, man it's just like yeah. it just it's such a poignant moment and i think that especially from what we got to see like is in like in the comics with like how much like toff like trained the metal benders and like how you know much time and energy was put into like getting them to get to the point where they could use their bending in that form effectively it's just like not only is all of that wasted but you've like stripped them of this identity that they have like
1: i i was gonna say the same that's that's what got what that's what gets me so much in this season is the ramifications of what this whole taking away of bending and equalizing is This is almost like if someone came up to you and just like booped you on the head and like all of a sudden you couldn't podcast anymore. Like, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like yeah, imagine how terrible of a world that is. Um, But just like it's the killing a person on the inside, which is what really got me with this, is that Avatar kind of toys around with it in in their whole existence, but especially in these episodes of making the quote-unquote death scene really just the scene of like, killing the person on the inside. Yes. Where, the, you know, and it's, you know, it's kind of funny that, you know, they go for the third eye when removing the bending. But to me, it's almost the same as almost like a gunshot to the head, which mm. is, I think what it's signatory of, which is just going, I've taken this from you.
0: Yes. Absolutely. And
1: everything that was your identity, everything that was you is gone. You're essentially dead. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And this, and I agree with you. It's like, that's like literally like metal bars that for them are just like, to- used to be toys. You know, now they're in prison, not only in the, literally in prison, but in their own head, what are they anymore? After all these years of training and that was their identity. It's, it's gone.
0: Yeah. Mm.
1: And as far as they know, it's permanent.
0: Yes. So everyone escapes as the alarms are starting to go off and, uh, they hop on the tram to make their way back. And then it just has this like moment where it zooms in down the tunnel and we see, uh, Amon's Lieutenant, and the mecha suits and all of these equalists just like waiting for them at the end of the tunnel. And we get this brilliant move from Lynn where she just like makes a ramp, sends the tram and sends them flying through the ceiling and up and out and onto the street. And again, just like this is such a great like showcase of Lynn showing the ingenuity and potential of earthbending and metalbending and, um, in a very like adaptive environment and
1: oh, yeah just loved it having thought of it there's several times we see kind of uh bigger forms of the advanced bending uh so for her it's the metal and earth bending combined which is just incredible and the fact that she like was like oh you know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna launch it at right at the rock knowing i'm an earthbender yes um but we get to see this also with um not to jump ahead but uh, Mako with the lightning, which we don't, mm. we haven't seen like the absorption and then reem, you know, and then sending it off again, and the uh, blood bending and then the anti blood bending. Like it's not only did we get to see advanced bending in this episode, we got to yep, yeah, and then the like uh, advanced form of even the advanced bending, yes, which is being able to use the metal bending with the earth bending, being able to use lightning bending and not just casually redirect it, but almost absorb it and then redirect it out. Um, and then not just bloodbending, but bloodbending multiple people and then anti-bloodbending.
0: Yes. Oh, man. So, so good. I love
1: getting to see that. Yeah. So I love getting to see um, Beifong just <laughs> just go nuts. Yes. Um, it so, really was just a cop without the badge episode. for her. Uh,
0: It really is. Just like, gotta go. Like, can't be held down by the law. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we get uh, we go back to Korra with her meditation flashback and we are back. Now, at the trial of Yacon. Um, a lawyer presents an argument saying that many people have been coerced by Yakone through something that has been illegal for decades bloodbending. And we see this like reaction from everyone, and we see very clearly Saka, the councilman, and just like all we had this... to see was
1: the hair bun. <laughs> I know that's
0: all we needed to see. Um, and you know. Yacon's lawyer uh, claims that these claims are bogus because they all know that bloodbending can only be done while it's a full moon, that these accounts contradict these time frames. And I think it's so interesting because, again, it's like this is the knowledge that we know through the Avatar universe. And we saw just how difficult it was, you know, for them to bloodbend. You know, it's just like you have to use that full moon like at the height of their power. But then it's just like, oh God, okay, yes, this is a solid argument, but what if they're right? And then Sokka and the council come back and, you know, he says that, you know, over the course of my life, I, uh, came across very talented benders. In fact, (laughs) I I even bested a man with my trusty boomerang that could firebend with his mind. (laughs) (laughs) shout out to Chris Hardwick who voices Sokka in this scene he just delivers on that just classic like Sokka like it's like he's full of himself but it's never so much where it's just like you think he's arrogant you're just like oh Sokka (laughs) it's like some things never change (laughs) And basically, you know, Sokka makes the conclusion that, like, you know, we believe that Yakone is just one of these exemptions, like, one of these, like, kind of uh, special cases. That he can do this without the full moon. And they sentence him to life in prison. But then, Yakone lets loose. And suddenly, we see him bloodbend Sokka and then Toph. And then everyone, including Aang. Without even moving his arms in the form, his eye just kind of, like, expands. This, I remember when I first saw this scene, was, like, it was mind-blowing to me. The gravity of this situation. That someone could do bloodbending like this, on this level, against seemingly two of the most powerful benders that we know exist in this world and completely incapacitating them.
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, I. it was one of those things I started thinking about and I'm like, you know, I think before you accuse someone of being this all-powerful bender, it's probably a good idea to take precautions first. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. But then again, I guess they didn't realize how much you could bloodbend. They were probably like, oh, well, you could bloodbend a person and we could take care of him if he does that, if we deliver this, Terrible verdict that we're telling him he's going away for life. So he has nothing to lose. Hence why Hang um,
0: is there and Toph is there. Yeah, it's just exactly. like They're like, oh, we'll But be it's fine. like one of those things
1: I thought about later. I'm like, oh, yeah, they wouldn't have expected that he'd be able to blend bed multiple people, which when you see that, you're like, oh, <laughs> that's not great. Yeah, no.
0: And then he uh, incapacitates the entire room, <laughs> uh, which is which is crazy. Um, and uh, so that the scene shifts and we get to uh, the Republic City Council Chamber um, the crew has returned and now they are confronting Tarlok saying that you know Equalist didn't take Korra you took her and mm. he is trying to say you know like what basis do you have for this and then off from the rafters comes Tarlok's assistant <laughs> <laughs> he did do it <laughs> I, see I, I saw, <laughs> and it's just like, and then immediately Tarlok's just like, everyone knows that you're just a lying, sneaking rat. <laughs> just like, <laughs> oh my God.
1: <laughs> that convinced me.
0: Oh my gosh. And, uh, you know, and then she, like they say, he's, he's a bloodbender. And then suddenly like the tone of the room just like shifts. And I love how this is, like, the case with bloodbending and how serious everyone takes it. Because, you know, when they had that flashback scene, they also said, like, he has done something that has been outlawed for decades. What that means is that other people figured out how to do it. Mm. Because if it was just Katara, like clearly she is not gonna use it because i think she only used it under like very very dire and emotional circumstances and it's the fact of the matter that other people discovered it and they had to outlaw it completely and that's like that's part of that just like hidden history that we don't know about but we know that there's like something must have happened it's kind of like you know when you see like a sign for like don't do this or like well
1: Someone must have done that <laughs> for this sign to exist. <laughs>
0: oh man. Yeah. That,
1: that's a very good point.
0: So the, the tone changes and then Tarlock is now put into a corner. And I love this as a character moment because like everything that Tarlock has just been planning, all of his chess moves have all been so meticulous and even down to like Placing, planting the evidence, telling the story, utilizing the fear against the equalists, getting Korra up to a remote location in the mountains, knowing that no one's going to know where she is. Like, he has all of this planned out, but then suddenly all it takes is this assistant to turn on him and everyone turning against him. And he's put into a corner and he is forced to use his bloodbending to escape, he has to play his final card. And it's just... It's, like, such a beautiful, like, downfall moment for him as a character, because he's just been trying to do everything legitimately through, like, the means of government and through his position, and now it's, like, he has to do the criminal thing in order to survive.
1: Yeah, it's why I enjoyed the way that they uh, had him bloodbed when Korra had him against uh, a hard place because it was one of those, like, once he played that card, that was it. Like, there was no keeping the genie in the bottle anymore. And like you said, it's like he was doing all this, like, years of effort, and as long as he played his cards right and he didn't have any meddling kids, things were going to go fine, but then she shows up, ruins it, and now he has this rat of an assistant that... (laughs) (laughs)
0: who saves the day. <laughs> they yeah. are the hero. <laughs> um, and then the, sh- the scene shifts back uh, in such a fitting way. We are brought back to Korra's meditation flashback and Yakone collapses everyone in the room and he escapes, uh, gets into like this cart pulled by an ostrich horse and is making his way through the city. But then Aang, get- Aang gets revitalized by the Avatar state for a moment and then he starts chasing after him and he is chasing after him now on an air scooter ball that is like like five times the size of the one that he traditionally used and it was just so cool to see like (gasps) grown-up ang and his grown-up air scooter and it's just like he's like doing all these like uh, like cool like like that move where he like he does the air bending slice to break the tether between the cart and the ostrich horse was just such a beautiful like precise airbending moment I just love yeah. that so much I did
1: like that um like previously Aang when we saw him in the original show it was just him you know fists together riding on the scooter you know uh, the air scooter for fun but in this one it's Ang in his like bending forms riding the scooter yes it's like his supreme mastery now over the thing that he created yes is incredible
0: oh so cool and then Aang eventually gets to him and confronts him, but then Yakone is using his bloodbending, saying he's going to put him to sleep for good, and Aang is contorting in this horrible way, and then suddenly the Avatar state kicks in. He breaks through, and then he puts Yakone in that earth bending trap, and then tells him, I'm going to put I'm gonna take away your bending for good. And quickly makes that decision and takes his bending away.
1: It's kind of interesting that this, uh, this whole season of Korra is about people taking bending away. Yes. On both sides.
0: Absolutely. And what's really interesting is that there is very much a, there is a huge part of like, Ang having this ability, it's kind of like this ultimate move. And it's just like, it is an incredible power. And it really is that kind of like Uncle Ben, you know, modicum of like with great power comes great responsibility because it's just like you are playing, you know, you are messing with the forces that established who is a bender and who is not. And what's really fascinating is that the recent comics that just came out um, in Balance, there is a moment that deals very specifically with this idea of Aang trying to weigh whether or not like what justifies someone as being deserving of having their bending taken away and it's such a great foreshadowing moment for this moment in the flashback and a reflection of the moment that he reached with Fire Lord Ozai because it's this decision that like you know Aang is a non violent practitioner. He didn't want to kill the Fire Lord. And what is the only way that he can get away with being able to defeat the Fire Lord but not take his life? It's taking his bending away. It's this beautiful solution, but it's a beautiful solution that also comes back to haunt him because it is like this an incredible power that is also devastating to the individual as we have like already said with the way that Amon has been using it maliciously. Mm. So we get back to Tarlok's cabin and Tarlok returns. He is like in a disheveled mess and he is like venting to Cora. And it's just like, it's his like Scooby-Doo like villain moment where it's just like, I would have gotten <laughs> away with it too, if it wasn't for you meddling kids.
1: <laughs> By the way, I was thinking of this, uh, this comes like uh, at the end of this episode. How did he get her over there? Like, it's in this giant metal box. And he has her just like, drop down there. I don't think he had anyone helping him. How did he move her? (laughs) And I bring this up also because then Amon's like, oh, well I have a bunch of strong guys. Well, we should get her out of the cage first. And I'm like, wait a minute. Tarlac got her there in the cage. By himself. Just keep her in the cage. (laughs) She's going to the game. <laughs> now uh, that I'm, I'm marking some episode, like it was just like one of those things where like I was looking at, and I'm like, wait, 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 wait. we got to get back here. Like wh- what's going on? <laughs>
0: I think it's like it's one of those things where it's just like I think that when a show moves at such a fast pace, it's like one of those things where you have to just suspend your belief and not like ask too many questions. I, I was willing,
1: <laughs> I was willing to let it go just because she had the very cool move to get out of the el- electrocution later, but absolutely. Yeah, but I do like you, like. But you're right. This was his like. Oh god, it was such a great plan. Let me tell you all about it. So there's zero <laughs> chance there.
0: Oh man, but, <laughs> but i was just in this. But with Cora making the connection and saying like. Your Yakone son, mm-hmm. and like just this legacy of suddenly, it's just like the the history now kind of playing into it, and um, you know, again, the Tar- genetics
1: of powerful benders seems to be established with a uh, Toff to Beifong and um, Yakone to to Tarlock. So I'm like, they seem to be a, some establishing that powerful benders come from powerful benders for the most part. So yeah, her connection, that's why I'm like, oh, that's why she can connect the dots so quickly. It's, oh, well, he was that powerful. You're this powerful. There's only one way that can be.
0: Mm. And, you know, again, I love that when Tarlok is kind of like making his spiel, he's talking about how he is using government to assume power versus his father using the criminal underworld to assume power. And it's just such a fascinating, like, legacy for him because he understands that what his father did incorrectly and he is doing something different but what he fails to realize is that he's doing he's making the exact same mistake because at the end of the day he's manipulating people and even though he is not doing it through like kind of intimidation and bloodbending the way that his father did we clearly see that tarlock is a manipulative cunning politician who's using the full extent of his powers as a councilman and the fact that these other council people are just not doing much <laughs> like, yeah you know being able to mint- like we've talked about it in previous reviews like for this season it's like he is a puppet master of these other council members and oh
1: i see what you did there bloodbender is a puppet master
0: okay uh-huh. <laughs> um yeah it's just such a great character moment again for him and then you know he's talking about it, it's just like oh okay well we're we're gonna we're gonna leave town and i'll be able to start off new and it's just like this idea where he's gonna be able to just like he can he can start a new life he can just like take cora as a prisoner but like you know that he's not gonna do that it's just like that's just it's like it's him in this desperate moment He's seeing everything that he has built crumbling around him, and then the final blow, as he walks upstairs. There's Amon, Rao, wow, wow. and he th- and he thinks, "You have no idea who you're messing with," and he starts to bloodbend them down, and then Amon. Is immune to it oh and resists that, it.
1: As as soon as Amon took that extra step forward, I'm like, oh no, oh no. That was just oh, this oh, boy's bad.
0: I know. It's like that 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 moment I remember watching again for the first time was just like Oh my god, who is this guy? And it's just like, what is he about? Is he like a spirit? Like, what is his deal? Like, cause I remember that was like what I thought Amon was, was that he was some kind of like manifestation of a spirit because his ability to energy bend and the fact that he was immune to this, there was like, there's something that's not adding up with that, but like how well they kind of hit it in disguise of like his true identity. But it's just, it's such a poignant moment where he is just like, Oh God, not even bloodbending can stop this guy.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was the moment of, oh, boy, uh, we're, we're in trouble. Yes, this isn't great.
0: And, you know, and so Amon takes Tarlok's bending away. And it's, again, it's this moment where it's almost like Tarlok has lost everything. And now he truly, truly loses everything when his bending is taken away. And it's, I think, always a testament to a good villain when when they hit their lowest point you can't help but kind of feel a little bit bad for them that like he the the rocky bottom that tarlock hits is so low but i think it also the way his character resolves and we'll get into it as we get to the end it's just why the like this like season finale is like one of my favorites of all time oh gosh it's so good um so uh, Amon instructs his lieutenant to electrocute Korra before opening the box. He's just like, don't underestimate her. And they're like, okay, boss. And, you know, he, of course, Amon says this loud enough for Cora to hear yeah. <laughs> it. <his. laughs> and she's like, okay. And you see her look down at her armband and just the, like, the resourcefulness for her to, like, hang and then, like, act her way through of, like, being, you know, electrocuted and then like faking being passed out and then as soon as they move in towards her just like boom kick this fire blast out and then she just gets out of there in that moment where she like jumps out from the cabin in slow motion and she locks eyes with a man and it's just this like it's it's a moment where she's just like this is the worst place that I could fight him. And it's just like, <laughs> I gotta go. <laughs> and she just pieces out. Um, and, uh, Naga comes in to save the day at the very end. And so the episode concludes. So overall thoughts on this episode, uh, revisiting it.
1: As I was telling you before this Colin, I haven't watched these episodes in some time, so I'm enjoying going through them, uh, in order like this. And, what gets me with this is that it was the I mean, the whole season of first season of Korra is a lot of action. We got to get to stuff. We got to get to stuff. This is it getting to stuff. This is all right. You know, the characters now you understand the history behind it. And now Tarlok, who were like, oh, well, that's bad. Like Amon was like kind of around, but we know he's a villain at some point. Now you're like, oh, Tarlok was bad. Amon is way freaking worse. And he has this anti bloodbending stuff. How the hell is someone going to stop him? And it's just like one of those. So like now we're, we're left at this episode like, oh, shit. like, where do you go from here? Like, all right, Cora, how, how are you fighting this guy? <laughs> bloodbending <laughs> didn't stop him.
0: Yeah. It Just like raises the stakes continually. Exactly. Oh, man. Yeah, it's just uh, very, very interesting. Again, we get to see kind of like the the downfall of Tarlock. I think that's probably one of my favorite parts about this episode. Um, And then, of course, I think the, uh, you know, Lynn stepping outside the law and uh, the meditation flashbacks. I mean, this was such a huge moment for us as fans because it was just like, you're, you're like, we, it's them. It's, it's the gang. It's a, like part yeah. of the gang. And you're just like, you feel this just like warm sense of nostalgia, but it's just like, it's so fleeting at the same time.
1: Yeah. yeah. Like I, you want, you want to know how they got there. You want to know you're like, Oh man, they, they did all this stuff. It's like, Oh, I don't want to see the end and not like read the middle of the book now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I think it's like, it's, it's so, it's so well done by the writers because i think that like they don't i think as fans yes we would have loved to see more and more of it but i think from a writing perspective i think it's just like you don't lean heavily on the past and it's just like we hear katara say that from the beginning it's like this is your time now it's like you know we're yeah our our time is kind of passed and you know it's like time for you guys to kind of make this And, uh, you know, but it's Aang communicating a lesson from the past because it's important and Korra needs to know because it's like, it's his legacy. And I think that that's what's the most important part about Mm. all of this is that it's this idea of an avatar's legacy and how the next avatar has to deal with it. For Aang, it was the hundred year war. Roku's mistake of not being decisive with Sozin mm. led to the extermination of Ang's people and him having to fight this war against all odds. And you know, we see in uh, Rise of Kiyoshi Kyoshi is dealing with a world where Kurik like was carefree and did not really get involved with much. And she has to deal with the ramifications of that. And there's always this idea of, like, you know, what is it that the past Avatar has to deal with? Uh, or what does the current Avatar have to deal with that the past Avatar kind of left for them behind? And it's, uh, you know, it's at those times that they have to come in and, like, try to help them. When Aang was trying to figure out what his destiny was going to be, that's when yeah, Roku was Roku like... popped in, yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's time. And uh, I just think that the way that they did this and like the sepia tone of like the flashbacks was so fitting. Um, it felt very like on brand with Korra as a series and just so, so good. Ah, all right. Well, uh, that concludes, uh, our review of that episode. That was super fun. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Kevin, for joining me for, uh, for this review tonight. It was wonderful.
1: Oh, well, thanks for having me on. If you know, there's anything I like, it's, Having a drink and doing an episode of uh, this podcast, so
0: <laughs> there we go. What you? What are you drinking tonight? I
1: was uh, well. Uh, oh, I'll keep this very pabu. It's uh, it's a probably a double, if not triple, shot of ramen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, good, good, good. All right, folks. Uh, remember, you can uh, uh, find us on social media at uh, Legend of Portalcast on Facebook and Instagram. You can find us on Twitter at Portalcast Pod. And of course, listen into the websites if you want on our website at legendofportalcast.com or subscribe to us on iTunes and Spotify. Um, And if you're there, hey, leave us a review and a rating. Really, really helps. Um, Definitely uh, um, helps kind of get the the word out there. And uh, remember to also check out uh, Beyond Portalcast. Uh, It's the kind of joint venture that we're doing with uh, Beyond Bending Podcasts where we're reviewing chapter by chapter The Rise of Kyoshi. Uh, we've got a YouTube channel and just want to do a quick shout out to all the folks. Uh, we just kind of launched that today, um, when we recorded this and the, like the love that we got, like we already had like several comments and the support and encouragement that we got from the folks, uh, there guys, you, uh, you're amazing. We really, really appreciate the love and support, um, right out the gate for this. Um, we're so excited to be able to do this and, uh. Um, be on the lookout for next week. We're going to be uh, going into episode 10, turning the tide of this book one of Legend of Korra. But for now, hey, Natasha.